Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the Circe Podcast Network. I'm Joshua Gibbs, and this is Proverbial, the podcast where we explore the wisdom of the ages as it comes to us in Proverbs, by which I mean wise sayings a man may live by if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special. Episode 103, Grace Kelly. Today's proverb is unattributed. I'll read it twice. The proof is in the pudding. Once more, the proof is in the pudding. This is a shortened version of a longer proverb, and that longer proverb is the proof of the pudding is in the tasting. But this is a very common proverb. This is a proverb used by people who read books don't read books, people who like blockbusters, people who prefer Criterion Collection. This is a very common proverb. It's surprisingly controversial when you get down to its meaning. For a common proverb, for a proverb everyone knows and says. Not like something obscure from Goethe. I mean, everyone knows this one. And for a common proverb, once you actually suss out the meaning of this, it's a bit confrontational. A lot of people, a lot of modern people, do not like the truth that's just beyond the surface of this. The proof is in the pudding means the pudding only tastes good if it tastes good. The pudding doesn't taste good just because you followed the recipe closely. The pudding doesn't taste good just because it tasted good last time. The pudding doesn't taste good just because it's made by a world-famous pudding chef with a huge Twitter following and a podcast called Pudding Pro. The pudding doesn't taste good just because the arguments behind it tasting good are well-reasoned and delivered in a winsome way. The pudding doesn't taste good just because it's the latest recipe or the oldest recipe or the highest rated recipe on your recipe website of preference. The pudding doesn't taste good just because the package is nice. 
or because the pudding looks good after you've made it. The pudding doesn't taste good just because it's served to you by a woman who's as beautiful as Grace Kelly. What all this means, in brief, pudding does not taste good theoretically. There's no theory that makes pudding taste good. Pudding tastes good if it tastes good. Many things might suggest that the pudding will taste good. You might be very confident before you take that first bite, but it doesn't taste good unless it tastes good. It all comes down to that. It all comes down to experience. You can follow a sound theory of pudding and it won't turn out. You can have all of your arguments in line for why this is gonna be delicious. But if it doesn't taste good, it doesn't taste good. This is controversial because it means that people who have not tasted the pudding don't get to say whether it tastes good or not. Experience is what you need in order to have a valid opinion on this. Last month, I wrote an article about why I was banning water bottles from my classroom next year. And because I knew what sort of response this article was going to get, I opened this little essay by saying, if you don't have any classroom experience on this matter, on the matter of water bottles, you're not going to get it. If you don't have any classroom experience, this article isn't for you. This is only going to make sense to people who have been in classrooms full of water bottles in the last two or three years. And the response I got to this article was telling the people who were offended by it, and they were deeply offended, did not have classroom experience, by and large. Everyone who wrote in the comments section, how dare you? This is inhumane. This is why I don't send my kids to a school like yours. No classroom experience. The people who appreciated, agreed with the article, were by and large, not every one of them, but by and large, they were classroom teachers. They were people with experience. This wasn't a question of right or wrong. Okay, this is not a moral question. It was a question of whether water bottles were a distracting nuisance in the classroom. And you're not going to understand how annoying water bottles are unless you've been in a small room full of 17 of them that are in constant usage all day. If you don't have that experience, you're not going to get it. When you tell people their opinion doesn't matter because they don't have any experience of a matter, the modern man really gets quite angry about that. And the reason for this is modern men are so reliant on theories. It vexes them to no end to be told that their lack of experience means they don't have a valuable opinion. They want their theories to do all the heavy lifting. They don't want the difficult teacher of experience. They want theories. They want their own clear-sightedness to be what 
others' value. Everyone's entitled to their own opinion, of course. But the fact that everyone's entitled to their opinions or that all opinions are opinions does not mean that all opinions are equally valid. It doesn't mean that all opinions are equally reliable. Everyone's entitled to their own face, but some faces are more beautiful than others. Theories always make up for a lack of experience, or they attempt to, right? That's why we have theories. When we know, we don't need theories. When we're certain, we don't need theories. Theories can always be used to deny experience when experience is not favorable. What draws us to theories is their simplicity. Theories are always more simple than reality. Reality really refuses to be put in a really neat little box, right? And that's one of the premises of this show. This is something underneath every episode of this show. I'm not going to tell you how things always are. That's not what Proverbs are about. Proverbs are not about how things always are. They're about how things usually are, right? They're about normal experiences, average experiences, typical experiences, and that's reality. Reality cannot be put into a perfectly no outliers, no leftovers, no remainders kind of box. It almost seems as though reality defies our attempts to put it to laws. Uh, for example, no system of computing time has ever been devised that perfectly accounts for the passage of time. There's always something left over, right? That's why we have leap years. That's why we have these accumulations of time that have to be really just randomly accounted for at the end of February every four years. It's because there's no system of keeping track of time that neatly fits with reality. Reality is always like half a degree off. That's not how theories work, though. Theories are about how things always are. Which is why mathematical theories don't have outliers. Right? Mathematical theories don't have outliers. There's no outliers in geometry. There's not a claim that you would ever make about most squares. Like there's all squares or no squares. There's no, there's no variance in the way that a circle is described, right? It's 360 degrees every time. If you read Peter Lightheart's Solomon Among the Postmoderns, he describes in that book how modern people, how early modern people, 18th century, early 18th century, became entranced by the idea of theories moving from the world of mathematics into the realm of law, into the realm of statecraft, into the realm of theology. What modern people want, Lightheart claims, is a neat, clean system to impose on reality 
such that wisdom is not necessary anymore, right? Wisdom is the ability to see where human nature is going. Lots of variables in wisdom, right? Read Proverbs, read the book of Proverbs, I mean Solomon's Proverbs, and you'll see that Proverbs are about experience, they're about reality, they're about the uh, unpredictability of the human experience. Answer a fool according to his folly. Don't answer a fool according to his folly. You've got to figure out whether the situation is right for answering or not answering. And there's a lot that can go wrong there. There's a lot of variability, but it takes wisdom in order to determine whether this is a case where you're going to need to answer a fool according to his folly or not. There's no theory that accounts for when it's right or when it's not. Like, you have to figure it out on this moment-by-moment experiential sort of basis. Modern people don't like to have to wait for the emergent reality of experience to come into play. They want all the answers up front. They want it to always be right to do this, never to be right to do that. And the idea that there would be extenuating circumstances that mean that we can't judge uh, what's right or wrong until we're actually there, what's prudent until we're in the moment. Or that what is right sometimes, what is fitting sometimes, would not be fitting at other times. This drives modern people crazy. Like, for example, like the modern man looks at scripture and sees on the one hand the good shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep and goes and searches for the lost one. And then they see the parable of the prodigal son where the good father doesn't go looking for the lost sheep. Just waits at home. That's not what the good shepherd does. Good shepherd doesn't wait for the lost sheep to return. He goes out and looks for him. So what's a good father do? Does a good father always go out and search for the lost son? Or does he wait by the window? Well, no theory is going to account for which of these stories, which of these parables, is right and which one's wrong. It's not like that. It's a bit more complicated. Modern men got sick of hearing this. It's more complicated. They wanted something simple and neat and clean with nice edges, clear fences. And this was one of the reasons why reason was set up as something that opposed scripture or theology as a way of governing human behavior. Theology is too messy. Ten people have 11 different ideas on what a certain passage of scripture means. You never tell what's right or wrong. Whereas mathematics, reason, these things are predictable. And if they're predictable, then theories ought to be enough. We don't need experience. We don't have to wait for experience. Experience always requires patience, right? Modern people are incredibly impatient. It makes complete sense that a society as in debt as we are would also be governed on theories. It would be reliant on theories for everything. Theories can always be used to deny experience when experience doesn't go your way. What draws us to theories is their alleged universality. 
you can claim your experience is an outlier and that more experience would prove your theories right. There's a number of ways in which we deny experience. You can claim that your experience isn't an outlier, even when you know it is, and that everyone else's experience is contrary to your experience. I've spoken a lot about this in the last 10 to 20 episodes of the show, though, and I don't want to repeat myself, so I want to see if I can push this in a new direction. When I contrast theories with experience, I mean this. Theories generally attempt to explain why things are the way they are. Experience will not teach you why things are the way they are. That's not what experience is for. Experience will teach you that things are. Experience will teach you how things are, what they are, where they are. But theories attempt to explain why. I think that's the big difference between theory and experience. There are theories about why women are the way they are. Who cares? Better to know what women are like and what they like than why they are the way they are. And this is because theories always want to change something. Theories are almost always about change. Theories attempt to get at why things are the way they are so we can change them. Experience will always take you back to the unchangeable nature of things, though. Experience always takes you back to the limitations of things. If you're a man, it's one thing to theorize about how you can change your wife. It's another thing to work within the confines of experience. In theory, you can get your wife to adopt your hobbies. So you can spend more time on your hobbies. How many men have tried to do this? Like, my wife likes her stuff, I like my stuff. If I could just get her to like my stuff, then we could spend more time doing my stuff. In theory, you can change your wife. In theory, you can change your wife so that she likes football. In theory, you can change your wife so she likes golf and beer. Or you can just live with the fact that she likes different stuff than you do. So theoretically, you can change your wife. Theoretically, you can do pretty much anything. Experience teaches you that very little can be done. Theory always says, no, we can do this differently. The proof is in the pudding means your kids are well-behaved if they're well-behaved. It means your wife is happy if your wife is happy. It means you have a happy marriage if you have a happy marriage. The proof is in the pudding means that your marriage isn't strong just because you have a strong theory of marriage. Or just because you think your ideas about marriage are really solid or because you can defend the proposition that your marriage is strong. That doesn't make a strong marriage. It means your school isn't strong just because your faculty understand theories of classical education really clearly. It means your students aren't secretly happy. Your employees aren't secretly happy. There are a very few people out there that are secretly unhappy. 
No one is secretly happy, though. The proof is in the pudding means your son is smart if he's smart. He's not secretly smart. He's not actually quite smart. He's not smart in spite of a mountain of evidence to the contrary. The proof is in the pudding means you never need to tell a teacher, my son is very smart, or my daughter is very kind. Is she? Is she kind? We'll see. The proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the pudding means that music is as good as it sounds. It means paintings are as good as they look. It's for this reason that people claim that Jackson Pollock's work is actually quite good. That's what they say. No one ever says that about Rembrandt. You don't see that about Caravaggio. You don't, you don't put Caravaggio's The Doubting of St. Thomas. You know the one. Where Thomas's finger is pressed into beyond a thick fold of skin in Christ's side. This look of surprise is on Thomas's face. Christ, impassive, serene, as his body is penetrated. You don't show somebody Caravaggio's The Doubting of St. Thomas and say, oh, this is uh, actually quite good. <laughs> you would never say that. You would never play Beethoven's Ninth for somebody and say, this is actually quite good. You have theories about what Jackson Pollock was doing. You have theories about what John Cage was doing. You have theories about Kandinsky. But that's it. You don't need a theory to understand Caravaggio, though. It's as good as it looks. It's as stunning as it looks. You show Caravaggio's The Downing of St. Thomas to a child or a bishop or a farmer, and they're all going to say, that's stunning. It would be stunning if it was the size of a postage stamp. Pretty much every painting that's only justifiable by theory is huge. Jackson Pollock didn't paint small. Like walk through the walk through the contemporary art wing of any museum. Everything's always so big. If you go to the Renaissance section, there's paintings that are the size of a sheet of notebook paper. They don't need theories to make them look good. They don't need size to make them look good. They don't have to turn the volume up to 50 to make it sublime. It's sublime when it's small. The size of a Jackson Pollock painting is nothing more than a smoke and light show to distract you from the fact that it's gibberish. It's actually quite sophisticated. That's what people say about Jackson Pollock. You know why they say that? Because it doesn't look good. It looks like a hot mess. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. 
The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit makes these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the super light tree runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the super light tree runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a super light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.